I've known Tom Stewart for 31 years, all the way back to 1991, when Tom was a writer at Fortune magazine, where he specialized in covering management concepts and how organizations managed their internal knowledge. In 91, I was director of marketing at CSC Index, the management consulting firm that was known for bringing the concept of business re-engineering to the world with Michael Hammer. Re-engineering, of course, was the blockbuster management concept of the 1990s. I was trying to get Tom to write about re-engineering. I invited him up to Index's headquarters in Cambridge, Massachusetts. He made two visits to us at Index in 1991 and 1992. And in 1993, Tom wrote an article that made the cover of Fortune, an article on re-engineering, that helped unleash the concept to the business world at large, as did the book Re-Engineering the Corporation. So Tom was a writer at Fortune for nearly 14 years. He left in 2002, a year in which he was also the editorial director of a spin-off magazine of Fortune called Business 2.0. But in the fall of 2002, that year, Harvard Business Review lured Tom away from Fortune and Business 2.0. HBR named Tom editor and managing director of its magazine, which continues to this day to be the world's most prestigious publisher of management advice. In Tom's five and a half years in leaving HBR, he was in charge of all editorial, art, and production operations, including advertising and circulation. He also led a redesign of the print edition and helped upgrade its digital edition. Though Tom left HBR in the fall of 2008 to become Chief Marketing and Knowledge Officer at Booz & Company. Booz at the time was a large management consulting firm that years later was acquired by PricewaterhouseCoopers. In Tom's five and a half years at Booz, he rebuilt the marketing and knowledge management functions and he oversaw its strategy and business magazine, which was Booz's version of Harvard Business Review or McKinsey Quarterly. In 2014, Tom went on to become executive director of a think tank at Ohio State's Business School, a research program called the National Center for the Middle Market, a research program that continues to this day to study mid-sized companies in the U.S. Then two years ago, Tom became chief knowledge officer of a consulting firm called Achieve Next, where he stayed until April of this year. In my interview with Tom, we talk about his illustrious career his roles as a thought leadership professional, which I define as somebody who helps experts become experts, and as a thought leader himself. Tom has written four books or co-authored four books, and he's spoken publicly about issues such as knowledge management and thought leadership. So Tom, great to have you on our show. Uh, your background before Fortune was in book publishing. And I'm just wondering, how did you wander into the field of writing about ideas that help business leaders manage better intellectual capital, as you and Fortune called it at the time? Um, well, first of all, Bob, thank you for, for having me here. It's great to be here and to be in the presence of you, uh, whose own journey and, and, and history in this whole area of thought leadership and, and the idea that business can be driven by ideas is is long-standing uh, as mine. So it's, it's kind of, it's great to be here, sort of feel like like we're some of the early prophets getting together to say, remember those days. But we're also remember, we're also thinking about tomorrow. But let's, but because, because I think the role of ideas in business and the value of ideas in business is, if anything, far more important, even than it was back uh, when I got started in this. So I came into Fortune Magazine, as you said, from a career in book publishing. Um, I didn't know anything about business. 
my time at book publishing was 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 done. I sort of the, the industry was changing. I was changing, uh, and I went through the you know the usual calling people and calling people and calling people, and found myself thanks to uh, an author of mine, a guy who written for Sports Illustrated, found myself in the office of Richard Stolle, who was one of the high muckamucks at Time Inc. And he was the guy who um, bears on his breast the the badge of honor or shame for having invented People magazine. And so I end up in, in Dick Stolle's office. And it's one of those things where he's going to try to find something, you know, I mean, and I mean, I worked with Al Silverman from the Book of the Month Club and Bill Gilbert, who was the Sports Illustrated guy. And this was like, let's bring him onto the, into the fold here. And he said, I don't, I, I see you somewhere working in the back of the book, like the critics or, you know, the, the, in the features section at Time magazine or maybe at Fortune, what do you think about Fortune? And I told him I'd loved every issue I'd read, which was none. Um, and, 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 and then started, he sent me down to meet Marshall Loeb. And, and Marshall, who's then the, the great managing editor of Fortune, and Marshall took a flyer and said, why don't you do a couple of pieces for us? And, and I started getting fascinated by, by the material. Um, as I said, I hadn't known anything about business. I remember talking to an old friend and I said, I'm worried about all this. And he said, oh, for God's sake, Tom, don't worry about this. You know, those guys who you went to business school, they were the guys who were getting, you know, B's and C's when you and I were getting A's and B's. And that was, that was actually then true too. I mean, now the business school gates are much tighter and harder to get through. Of course, but they were getting jobs and 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 people with our, our People like us with liberal arts degrees weren't getting. Yeah, that well, that's job. that true too. That's true too. But but so I so I wandered into into Fortune, and what happened was like we were assigned Beats at the time, and Beats was a loose assignment. But you know, some 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 sometimes Alex Taylor, who covered the automobile industry, that was a beat. But my beat was business sociology, hmm. and that was the same beat that William H. White had, and it basically said. What's it like at work? And, and, and it was basically a beat for English majors. And so I started thinking about what's it like for at work. And I remember the first time I came up to HBS to interview somebody. Um, I can't remember what the topic was. Uh, uh, Shoshana Zuboff was then on the faculty of HBS and was writing about uh, the role of information technology and beginning to write about the, the digitization of processes and digitization of work and, and how knowledge was coming into work. And this sort of was one of those seeds that got planted. But I remember sitting in her office and um, we had a long interview, hour and a half. It was awesome. Um, she was both a professor, but she was also in charge of mentoring a whole group of first-year students about their summer projects and things like this. She had to get up at one point to take a break. And I looked at the books on her wall and there were these incredible books. There was you know, Samuelson's Economics and a few other things, but there was, there was Auerbach's Mimesis. And there were various, very, there were various other books about, about you know, sociology and life and people, how people get together. And there was this incredible multidisciplinary collection of books. And then she had to go out again after a while and I took a look at the pile, there was a pile of undergraduate stuff or first year stuff on her coffee table. And it was sort of what I want to do for my summer internship stuff. And there were things like, I'd like to get an internship role in a marketing department. 
and and the cognitive dissonance between the the banal ambition of these things i want a marketing internship and the sublimity of these books got me excited i thought there's something here about this connection of the day to day with these sort of large ideas that is 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 really exciting and that's how i sort of got got excited by this idea of ideas in in business the second stage of that came a couple of years later and fortune for years had had an end of the year beginning of the next year feature called the most fascinating people in business and walter kieschel who was the deputy managing editor at marshall persuaded marshall Loeb, this year let's make it the most fascinating ideas and i got deputed to be sort of the there was a editor and i was the lead writer but there were other writers but and and i started going around asking people what the most fascinating ideas were. And one of the people I talked to was a guy named Ralph Johnson. Uh, Ralph was the CEO um, who was consulting to aerospace companies on the side, sort of go figure, right? Ralph Johnson was CEO of a Wisconsin company called Johnsonville Sausage. The Johnson family had started the company in 1945. In the mid eighties, it was a $25 million firm Today, it's an $800 million firm that employs 3,000 people and is still 100% family-owned. Um, but I, he had written a fan letter to, for an article that I'd written, so I thought, gee, he must be a smart guy. So I called him up, and I said, I'm working on this thing. What ideas excite you? And he said, intellectual capital. I said, what's that? He said, in the 19th century, the most important asset for a company was land or raw materials. Uh, then in the 20th century, the most important, first part of the 20th century, the most important asset was money, was financial capital, physical capital, financial capital. Now the most important asset is brains, it's intellectual capital. And then they said, what's on balance sheets doesn't matter. It's the intellectual capital that matters. And that appealed to me for two reasons. First of all, I thought he was right. Second of all, I knew nothing about what was on balance sheets. So anybody who said that that was irrelevant was saving me a whole lot of homework. Uh, and third, it, it just, it just, felt to me like this was new, uh, and, and it kind of was. Nobody really put any codification on it. It felt like it was, so it connected with, you know, my enthusiasm about ideas. It connected with my, with my belief that what was on Shoshana Zuboff's shelf was more important than what was on her table. Uh, and it connected me, connected me with this sense that if you took, if you started thinking about these things, you could actually make a difference in business. You could make a difference in how companies worked, how well they performed, and ultimately how well economies worked for all the people who live in them, live and work in them. This is fascinating because this came from a, a guy whose company made sausages. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a fascinating company, by the way. I mean, one of the things that was really interesting about Johnsonville Foods is, I said, family-owned business. Um, uh, it may now be employee-owned. I haven't looked in a while. Uh, but a lot of what Stayer was about was about what we, you know, some people would then call theory why managing. It was about, about not treating employees as if they were machines, you know, understanding people, getting the most out of people's performance, giving them opportunities to learn, grow, and improve their own performance. And, and so he was, he was very much one of these guys who believed in, in, in releasing the potential of, of employees to get better performance, which by the way, was the philosophy he also took into his consulting work with Lockheed Martin and various of these other guys and saying, you've got a bunch of bright guys here. 
why are you strapping them down and putting them in down, putting them into little boxes and, 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 and micromanaging them when if you release that energy and shape it, uh, mm-hmm. you know, shape the results rather than try to micromanage every, every detail, you're going you're gonna to get more engaged employees and more effective results, particularly where you're dealing with um, innovation and, 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 and change. And so at Fortune, you know, the, the business sociology beat, right, that, that you were on that. Did you then change your beat? It was still the business sociology. I mean, as I said, the beat, you know, for, for, for many people, beat was a serious thing. But for other people, beat was sort of like, oh, if something comes up like this, let's talk to Tom or let's talk to, you know, Joe or, or Jane or whatever, because that's, that's ostensibly their, their beat. But it really became, that became what I started running with. And and it did connect because um, a lot of the thinking about intangible assets starts with people. I mean, it starts with with you know the you know the the, the schema about intellectual capital is that these assets come in the form of human capital, you know, the relevant things we know as a group of people, um, structural capital, which is the processes and the intellectual property and the brand and the the stuff that stays there after the people go home uh, and, and that can be written down. And then customer or relationship capital, which is the value of our relationships, you know, up and down the value chain. And so, so but it does, it, those, those start with, with the human connections. And so they, they are fundamentally, I guess they are sociological in that sense, in that they're not engineering, they're not financial. Uh, they start with, they, they start with the, the human side of things. And so after a while at Fortune, when you began writing these articles about intellectual capital, did you become known within Fortune as this is the person who writes about uh, management ideas, whether they're coming from consultants or academics or from uh, CEOs of companies themselves, uh, a Jack Welch or a gentleman at uh, Johnsonville Foods? Did you become known as, well, you should talk to Tom, somebody not, yeah, not really. Not, I mean, at Fortune at that point was, well, let's say business in general at that point. We're talking the early 1990s. Business at that point was full of new ideas. I mean, it was uh, Walter Kieschel had just written an extraordinary series of articles about strategic planning. And strategic planning had was a relatively new idea. There were lots of other, and, and technology was coming, of course. Uh, and technology was changing. And you yourself were, were very much involved with re-engineering, which was the application in the digital world of it was a new idea or certainly a new application of how to think about organizing processes for greater efficiency. So, so business was full of ideas. And I just sort of was in that beat along with others. The real becoming known for me was not within the walls of fortune, but was in this burgeoning community of people who were following looking at intellectual capital. I, I wrote once that when, when an, an, an idea whose time has come appears everywhere all at once. And um, there was the same time I was writing about intellectual capital, Gary Hamill and C.K. Prahalad were writing The Core Competence of the Corporation, which appeared in Harvard Business Review, which I had not read when I started working on intellectual capital. I don't think it had appeared yet. The same time, Nanaka of Japan was writing the Knowledge Creating Corporation, putting the finishing touches on that while I was working on that article. At the same time, 
Uh, there was a guy named Carl Eric Sphebe in Stockholm who was writing a book about knowledge in companies. He started out as a stock analyst and was saying, there seems to be some fundamental difference in the stock market performance of knowledge-based companies versus non. So he started digging into that. Leif Edvinson at Scandia in Sweden was named Director Intellectual Capital at Scandia. And I remember just walking into my office one time when he, he was in New York, he came, made an appointment, he handed me his business card and said, Director Intellectual Capital. I said, what? And you know, so, so there was this whole group of people out there looking at, at this elephant. Uh, and you know, I was fortunate enough to have the, the loudest bully pulpit on Fortune, uh, which meant also that they wanted to talk to me, you know, because they I was, you know, this was this was an opportunity to to share their thinking, get some, get some um publicity for them. And I became a a sort of a schizophrenic creature, which is that on the one hand, I was a journalist writing for Fortune magazine. And on the other hand, I was one of the leading lights of this community of people. I'm not sure whether there were any other journalists per se in that community working on intellectual capital. And a very funny thing happened. I can't remember exactly when during this, but, but uh, when Lou Gerstner became the CEO of IBM, one of my fortune colleagues wrote a brilliant piece. I mean, IBM had been in trouble, you know, and he came in and she wrote a brilliant piece basically saying, Lou Gerstner is doing a great job at IBM, but he's a mean, tough son of a bitch. And, and all he saw was the mean, tough son of a bitch part. And the word came down from on high at, in Armonk, New York. Nobody can talk to anybody at Fortune magazines because we're going we're gonna to punish them. We're going to exile them because they've, been, <laughs> they've called me a mean, tough son of a bitch. So I'm going to prove them right. Um, and um, so at that time, uh, I, was, I wrote a column um, interviewing my pal Dave Snowden, who uh, with, with his research over many years has become a, you know, an absolute leading light, the Kinefin concept that he has about managing in chaos and understanding uncertainty. And he, he was doing a lot of this where he was working at IBM, working on some of these issues of intellectual capital, knowledge management, understanding the value of knowledge. And I interviewed him for a piece that I was writing. And I warned him, I said, you're not supposed to talk to me. He said, I'm going to talk to you anyway, because that, you know, Dave's a Welshman, he doesn't give a damn. And, and so, so we did, uh, I wrote the piece. And then I got a phone call from Dave a while later. He said, you want to know the fastest way to have a personal one-on-one -on -one conversation with the CEO of the IBM corporation? And I said, no, Dave, what happened? And he told me that he'd been called on the carpet. And he had said, I love the story. He'd, he'd said, look, um, uh, I understand this. You have hired me to do this work. And in order to do this work, I have to be involved in the community that does this work. And Tom Stewart is an important part of the community that does this work. I cannot do my job successfully without talking to Tom Stewart because of his role in this. And he said, so when I was talking to Tom Stewart, I was not talking to Tom Stewart as a journalist. I was talking to Tom Stewart as the thinker about intellectual capital. He said, I can't be responsible for the idea that Tom Stewart, the thinker about intellectual capital, also talks to Tom Stewart, who's a journalist. And so Gerstner and he agreed on that. <laughs> you know, but, that, but that was the thing. There was this group. And, and you know, you were part of it. Hammer was part of it in the re-engineering part. Tom Davenport, also very much engaged with re-engineering, but also very important in some of this thinking about knowledge assets. 
these groups, you know, came together and there was a group that came on the technology side, which included Mike and Tom. And there was a group that came from the, the, the human capital side, Peter Senge and various people like this. And, and, and there were all of us sort of looking at this thing about what happens to business when ideas are what, and, and knowledge are, are what drive it forward and create success rather than big steel mills or big oil wells or, or you know, big bank accounts. And so executives reading Fortune, executives reading HBR, executives reading other publications, executives attending this Davos conference, which just wrapped up yesterday, or TED Talks, right? There seems to be a, a thirst for good ideas. Yeah, and, and right now, I think we're, there's a, we're in a bit of a desert, or we have been in a bit of a desert. These things come and go. Uh, uh, and what's the, your theory on why, why the desert? What's your theory on why there's a, a paucity of big ideas? Yeah, and I'm, I'm about to contradict myself by saying I think the desert is, is actually starting to bloom again. I, it's not coincidental that this incredible time in the early 90s when there just seemed to be all kinds of fantastic new ideas about business, it coincided with the emergence of information technology. I mean, literally, my first cover story on intellectual capital and fortune was published two months before a guy named Tim Berners-Lee came up with this idea for something called the World Wide Web. And, you know, so this, the, the, the net was changing all kinds of ways in which biz communication happened, business got done. And so tech and tech, not just the net, but technology generally. You know, you remember, you may remember at the time there was a guy named Robert Solo, a Nobel Prize winning economist at MIT, who talked about the quote unquote productivity paradox. He said, we can see the impact of information technology in everything except the productivity statistics. If it's so important and valuable, why doesn't it show up in these statistics? But it was showing up. It just was showing up in different kinds of statistics. It was showing up in different ways. And, and because the economy was changing to a quote unquote knowledge economy and some of the data didn't capture it. So, so that time was a time of, of radical change. And, and it would be interesting to go back, to think, to look back at what happened to business ideas when electricity started happening. And so, you know, did this change uh, thinking about business. And, and it would be interesting to take that historical perspective or some other changes. I think now that we are seeing something again. Um, and it's to some extent, it is a continued rolling out of things that started happening uh, 30 years ago again. But, but it's also transformed. Um, the omni-channel capabilities of companies, the role of the increasing power and role of customers, the increasing importance of customer experience. I was talking to a guy yesterday from a company I can't name, but it's a technology-based company, part of a Fortune 100 giant company, but it's a $1 billion business inside this multi-billion dollar, you know, $100 billion business. Uh, put together from three mergers. And he said each of these three startup companies or smallish companies was focused on getting their technology to work. That was what they want to do, get stuff that works. And they're now losing market share because 
the problem is people assume the stuff's going to work. Customers assume the stuff's going to work. What they really need is a really thorough thought about what the experience of the customer is and how to. There's this interesting stuff that's come out of mostly European academics, which is about perceived value. A lot of businesses talk about value added. What have we done that added value to our raw materials so it is worth more when we're done with it? But but the 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 this other lens is to say, let's look at value perceived. It's not the value you've added. It's the value I get as a customer. How do I perceive that value? What's the value I take? What's the value I receive? And, and that's the famous Ted Levitt thing. People don't want to buy three-quarter inch drills. They want to buy three-quarter inch holes, right? What's the value you get? And, and this, um, there seems to me to be a big idea or, or the seed of many big ideas in this idea of, of value perceived, that it's not what I do, it's what you do with what I do, that that's where the magic happens. And, and if we can start opening that up um, and helping companies understand that, that they can really rethink everything, what's in their balance sheets, what's not, what they, what they insource, what they outsource, what they do, how they approach customers, how they engage customers, what customers they don't want to serve, and what customers they do want to serve, it can really inform strategy, organization, and operations in a profound way. So I'm wondering whether there really is kind of like the food deserts. They talk about food deserts. You know, there yeah. can't get healthy food in this town out in the middle of Arkansas. We're in a management. I are we really in a management idea desert, or are we really in? There's so many. The web has made it has democ the web has democratized the ability to get your ideas in front of people, and so. The consumers, the executives looking for the next re-engineering or the next disruptive innovation concept, they're overwhelmed by good, bad, terrible, great ideas. It's much harder for them to sort through stuff. That's true. This is something I talk about in my book, Competing on Thought Leadership, as a signal that executives are getting inundated with new ideas for improving the way they manage their businesses. I point to the number of books that use the phrase thought leadership since 1970. Now, Google actually tracks this with something they call their Ngram viewer. Lots of book authors have been trying to peddle their concepts using the term thought leadership to describe them. The democratization of ideas is also the babelization of ideas, yeah. right? I mean, there are just too damn many of them. Uh, I remember when I was editing HBR, going out to see Jim Collins at in his office in Boulder, and and Jim was saying that he worried that HBR's move from six times a year to twelve times a year, eleven times a year was actually was was diluted. I like to talk about the thud factor. Uh, you know, you you have a magazine book or a white paper, and you drop it on a desk, and there's a thud. Uh, that didn't thud very effectively. We'll see. You got the, the thud factor. This, this, this idea matters. And when I was talking about Fortune, you know, at that point, Fortune was a place where could speak ex cathedra. You know, Fortune says, this idea matters. HBR says, oh, this idea matters. HBR still has some of that power. Uh, I, I think it's diluted like everything else is. But, but the idea that somebody says, yeah, this, this is something you need to pay attention to. It's harder now because there's so much chaff diluting the wheat. And, and there's so many marketing pieces masquerading as think pieces. 
listicles masquerading as comprehensive thoughts. Makes me wonder whether the democratization of management ideas favors those who know how to market very well, especially through social media, and doesn't favor those with big ideas who, who just are not facile marketers. That's a good question. I, I hope the answer to that is, is no, that it doesn't. But, but I think that it certainly, you know, what's Gresham's law? Bad money drives out good and, and fact of facile ideas drive out difficult ideas. Um, Clay Christensen used to be very good at, at teaching the difference between what seemed clever and plausible and what was really rigorous and take it to the bank thinking. Um, and, and that's, of course, something that at its best academic work does. At, at its worst, it gets off in tiny little how many ideas can dance on the, on the, on the head of a pin and it, it gets off into irrelevance. But, but that question of how you bring both rigor and relevance to thinking is really important and really important for, for the people peddling ideas like you and me, but also really important for those people buying them because you really, you want they want to, they should be getting stuff that's solid. Your idea desert idea also makes me think, or comment also makes me think about whether there are industries that are idea deserts uh, or, or that, and that needn't be. And I'm going to pick unfairly on construction, for example. Is construction an industry that could be much more effective if the people who ran construction companies, you know, were approached with, with ideas that were really good and really relevant and that they saw them and saw, wow, this can really make a difference. You know, are, are there opportunities in, in what you might call, I mean, that's, as I said, it's unfair to construction, but if you say anti-intellectual industry, you know, oh, we're metal benders, we don't do this, or we're builders, we don't do this. But, you know, it, 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 I, I wonder whether there, well, it's true in private equity in many cases, we're deal makers. I don't care about management. I just, we're, 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 you know, our ideas are financial engineering. Private equity firms are starting to realize that they need more than that. So do need to think about management. But there's a lot of people who think, ah, go away, kid. You know, pointy-headed intellectual stuff. We're we're not, you know, we're not interested. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. Okay, um, over the last thirty years, you've had a, a, a splendid seat in the stands, writing about intellectual capital and fortune, presiding over Harvard Business Review being the chief marketing officer and chief knowledge officer at Booz and Company and so on and so on. And you've been on the playing field of management ideas, you know, producing your own stuff, creating your own sausage, writing your own books, writing at the National Center for the Mid-Market. So you've been both a thought leader and a, what I call a thought leadership professional, the people who help the thought leaders become thought leaders. So You've seen both sides of this. A player coach, let's call it. Yeah, yeah. Player coach. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so you've seen big management concepts take off. You've seen other management concepts flop. What are your thoughts about the key factors behind the ideas that were big, that weren't in place with the ideas that flopped? So there's a, a facile answer, and and there's and and then maybe the facile answer will open up something else. The facile answer says that the marketplace of ideas is like any other marketplace, and it may be inefficient, but eventually the good ideas win out. And, and so um, ideas that flop just aren't very good ideas. But there's something else in there. There's, there's, there's something that, that, that you and I have seen, which is good ideas 
that are good ideas that struggle, that struggle to get adopted, that struggle to get out. And, and I think that there are a few factors here that help the good ideas. One of them is they, to have a powerful advocate. And that powerful advocate may actually be somebody who wants to profit from that good idea. In the early days of intellectual capital, these were also the early days of enterprise software systems. Oracle was out there and yeah, SAP and all these people trying to, trying to build enterprise software. Uh, I remember going to a conference in Nashville uh, and Tom Davenport and I were on the same plane or ended up at the airport at the same time, but I think we were on the same plane. And there was some magazine that he found on a newsstand that had some idea, some, some title like, um, you know, Big Thinker magazine. I can't remember what it was. He opened it up and it turned, said, I've never seen this. I wonder what this is. And he looked at it and said, it turned out to be a rebranded thing from like, you know, Technology Weekly. And they were trying to brand themselves as being about transformation rather than about, about bits and bytes. So it does help. Sometimes there's somebody who's, who's got a business that is riding on this idea and is selling that idea, and they become its advocate and supporter and so on. That's one thing. There's, there's something else. So just on that point, so there's yeah. some ideas in which there's a lot of money riding on, that's what I'm hearing, companies adopting that idea, like re-engineering, fueled yeah. the growth of ERP, of SAP, especially of ERP systems. A lot of money riding on re-engineering, not just for the consultants like Index and and Capgemini and McKinsey and A.T. Carney, who are making boatloads of money on business process redesign consulting. There's a lot of technology that was pulled. The first. software companies. Yeah, exactly. I remember, you know, there's a quote from um, Henry David Thoreau. I think it's in Walden. He says, beware of all ventures that require new clothes. And I remember giving a quip in speeches. I said, beware of all management ideas that require new software. But and yet, you know, these guys were advocates, so they were pitching this stuff because they were pitching the pitching the software as well. So that's helpful to have some sort of a champion, and let's be let's be real about it. Another thing that is that is I've always found interesting and difficult is the the connection between ideas and the people who are actually talking to customers uh, and the sales force. In a lot of the organizations I've been involved with, we saw it at Booz. We certainly saw it with our sponsors at the National Center for the Middle Market. Uh, we've seen it with other organizations. The, you could come up with some really brilliant research about mergers and acquisitions in middle market companies or uh, a framework for digital transformation or understanding the difference between strategic, operational, and, and uh, exogenous risk. And you could come up with you know, brilliant stuff. But if the partner did not bring it to the client, uh, if the insurance broker did not bring it to his customer, if there was, if the relationship manager in a bank did not bring it to, you know, his or her customer, the idea was not, the idea didn't gain action in the organization. Um, and that connection with, with the sales team which can be the, the partner in a consulting firm, or it can be the, or it can be a guy with a car in a bag. That connection with with the sales team is critically important. I think it gets to that value perceived thing. I mean, like salespeople have, have had a very interesting uh, progression over the last twenty or so years as as people have gone into more selling of solutions. Right, I'm not just selling you from a here's the catalog, pick three of this and five of that. And, you know, here's your discount, you know, that's oversimplifying, but, but it's, 
but but to let's try to understand your problem. How can we IBM help you? You know, do a better job of this. How can we automobile parts manufacturer not just conform to specs, but actually, you know, become more of a, a value added partner in this. As you move toward a more solution selling thing, ideas become critically important. But getting ideas into getting ideas perceived and used by salespeople is is is, is a tricky problem. And why is that? It's not their no, idea. I, no, I don't think. Well, some guys in the case of in the case of consulting partners, that can be the case, right? Uh, in many cases, the salesperson wants to control the relationship with the client, and that could be a, a partner, or it could be just you know a widget salesman calling on a hardware store. Uh, it's my customer. I'm going to talk to him. You know, uh, and and once you start getting into this area of ideas, you know, the, the the salesperson can start losing control. I remember having conversations with that back when I was in the book publishing business, and they said, you know, Tom, your catalog copy is too good. I said, What do you mean? I said, It's too readable, it's too interesting. And it's, and I don't want, I, I don't, when I'm talking to a buyer, I want to be able to control the conversation. I don't want them to start reading your copy. <laughs> so please design your catalog. So it's got some bullet points at the beginning, so I can stop the conversation. And then, so it's partly control. It's partly, it's partly the incentives and training for salespeople, helping them understand. I mean, there's not a whole lot of research into how to sell major accounts. I, I actually went and looked that up. The last stuff that was in HBR is about 20 years ago. That business has changed dramatically. So, so you know, getting into that conversation is difficult. Giving sales reps the tools that they need and understanding it, it's, I think that there's, a, that there's a, a use case customer journey. Like, what's that conversation like? That conversation I had with that, that Harry McCullough was the name of that sales rep who told me this over our like fifth beer after at a sales conference dinner. Um, but I remembered it. But that's, you know, getting into that conversation with what is it ac actually happens there is, is something that needs to happen. And, and this is maybe as part of the classic sales versus marketing. I've got, you know, marketing guy who's got an MBA and the sales guy who doesn't. There's a class distinction. There's a certain cynicism that salespeople have, you know, is New York ignorant or are they trying to screw us on purpose? You know, <laughs> there, there are issues there that, that make it that, that, that become obstacles to using ideas. I, I guess those, those are a couple of the big reasons that, that, that ideas fail, lack of a sponsor, yeah. lack of a strong connection to demonstrable results. Um, did Booze solve that? When you were at Booze, did they solve that problem of, you know, we have a big idea, we had three authors on the book or the HBR article or the strategy and business article, and they've been teaching our other salespeople about the idea and how to open doors with it and, and how to, you know, um, do work, consulting work with it. Nobody ever, nobody ever solves that problem. I mean, you know, I think, I mean, in a sort of a permanent way. I mean, there's always this tension between the ideas at the center and the ideas at the coalface where the consultants are working. And, and one of my favorite ever encounters with Booz was when a, with a couple of people who came into me and said and taught, wanted me to know about their practice which was helping chemical plants in Europe go through a regular cleaning. It's a hugely lucrative practice. And he said, and the guy who was talking to me about it said, this is a hugely lucrative practice and nothing that you guys are publishing helps me at all. <laughs> he said, I, said, I don't need it. He basically I don't said, need it. It's yeah, I don't need it. 
I said, is there anything that we, and so I put on my marketing, is there anything we in marketing can do to help you? He said, no, we're good. But I just want you to know about us. So, so you, you, but you never crack from, but we did, one of the things we did do at Boost that was really good is you try to engage as many people from as many different practices as possible, the industry practices from different regions, and then roadshows, you know, go out. Um, there were many, in many cases, there were good ideas that people didn't know how to sell because the people who had developed the ideas were the ones who really knew it. So come and ride shotgun with me, come and talk to my clients. Come. So, so there was a lot of road showing and a lot of, you know, let's go talk to clients together and, and sort of training and training people and helping people uh, to understand, but you, but you had to have them receptive. You've always, you've been in that classroom when you were in first or th- second or eighth grade, where you just folded your arms and said, yeah, right. And, and you can't push that. You have to sort of get people excited about the opportunities and the possibilities. Okay, let's switch to a different topic here. And it's about how to make the sausage. You know, you've been both, uh, you're both a thought leader and a thought leadership professional helping thought leaders get there. Uh, so you've had the chance to observe and take part in this you know, delicate dance between the aspiring thought leaders or current thought leaders and the, and the people trying to you know, make them bigger or, or, or to get there in the first place. What are the keys to, let's call it, dance partners who dance well together? Because in my experience, it's a delicate dance. It is a delicate dance. Uh, I, when I went to Booz, I, I joked that the difference between a, uh, an HBS professor and a booze partner is that the HBS professors only thought that they owned the place, um, but the booze partners actually did. Here's, here's part of what it is. I mean, there's, there's, it's really important for any editor, and let's think of this as an editorial relationship, any editor to recognize that his or her role is to help the other guy shine, is to help that author shine. And also sometimes it's the tough love role of saying, you know what, this isn't good enough. It's just isn't good enough. But you can't say this isn't good enough and be believed unless you've already made the empathetic attachment connection so that the person, so that you're working together. And and so, you know, brash is not a good thing for somebody who's working in, uh, in, in the thought leadership field. And since that has been a core competence of mine since I was two years old, it's once it's a lesson that I've painfully had had to learn. It's just, you know, your job is to help the other person's light shine, and also to say this whether this is this this is this is real or not. So you yeah, I think you have to sort of think where did you learn this? Or where why why are you coming? Where did you learn this? How are you using this? How does this differ? How does this how does it, and and you may have to be as the editor or you know partner here. You may have to be the person who knows the rest of the literature. So this sounds new to you, but here are these four other things that are in this area. How does this relate to them? How is it similar? How is it different? And they may not know, they may not know about them. They may know about them and may have great ideas, but you have to sort of like, what's, what's new? What's better? What's different? How does this apply? Where does it not apply? I mean, that's the other where does this work and where should where where, where would it be this be dangerous? A light socket you don't want to stick your finger in. So it's really having that conversation first to try to understand what's new. And then starting to think about what it takes to prove an idea. 
when I was in high school, I was a high school debater and I learned a lot about proof, including, you know, how, how orations are structured, but also the rule of three, you know, I mean, if you want to prove something, you need three proof points. You don't always need three, three, but how do you prove it? But then, so you've got an idea, tested it, you've, you've proven it, but then you have to figure out how to tell a story with that idea. You know, that classic marketing position statement for this audience, I do X by doing why I can, I can deliver this kind of value because of that. You know, what's in the, what's in it for me? What's the story? What's the value you'd be creating for clients? And then how do you tell that story and, and in a storytelling way? And in many cases in consulting firms, people say, well, I, I can't pay my client. Uh, we can tell the story, but I can't, oh, well, it's a big consumer packaged goods company that's, you know, in America, isn't very helpful. So um, helping people tell stories with data and stories with company and stories about companies and getting, getting, giving them the courage to get out there and be entertaining is, I think, those are, those are sort of three elements, you know, I'm digging into the idea and testing a little bit, proving it, and then figuring out how you turn this into something compelling. So what's your advice for, let's say, the young thought leadership professional who sees what the folks, the editorial folks at McKinsey or Booz or or ever, you know, are saying um, they're frustrated with journalism, jo jobs are hard to get, and they're saying, I think I might like this field of helping thought leaders become thought leaders. What would your advice be to these young thought leadership professionals of what they need to prepare for if they're going to make this a successful career? What do they need to know that you learned and I learned? Uh, you know, in some senses, I got lucky. Uh, because being at Fortune, you could see it was, you know, you were being, you're up on the bridge of a very big battleship, seeing a whole lot of things around you, ideas and things coming through. Ditto at HBR, you know, so, but, but that's one piece that I would say, know a lot, learn a lot, read a lot, um, get involved in that, get, get involved in that world. You don't want to be, um, over time, you know, it takes 10,000 hours or whatever it is to become an expert. So, you know, you don't become an instant expert, but learn a lot and, and bathe in this wherever, wherever you can. Um, second of all, understand the difference between thought leadership and marketing. You know, and marketing, in many cases, thought leadership is part of the marketing department. It has to be part of the marketing. That's okay. You know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. But when you're doing this sort of thing, you are not, you, it's not just an ad. It is actually you know, you're actually, you're actually taking a sort of a higher position uh, about that. Uh, and that means you need to have, you know, find people who champion that. And that might be a third thing. You, you, I think you need to understand, find a way in which you can connect those ambitions to the places where you're working. I don't think that a company like Walmart is going to be, in many cases, an amenable home for a lot of thought leadership. Walmart sells everyday low prices. You know, that's their brand. That's their essence. Yeah, there are ideas and stuff like this, but they're not going to go out and say, you know, th that, that's not their role. But a boutique fashion house is an idea place, right? I mean, uh, you know, specialists, um, companies that are trendsetters, companies that are specialists, companies that position themselves as we're the best, you know, McKinsey does, you know, right? BCG, we're, we've got the newest thinking. People who put themselves in that position, uh, those are, and, and they don't, I've mentioned consulting firms, they can be technology companies, they could be construction companies, they could be architecture firms, they could be all kinds of, all kinds of companies. 
you need to have a thought leadership agenda that matches the strategic thrust of the company. If it doesn't, you're writing marketing copy. Either be happy with writing marketing copy or go do something else. Or get out and go somewhere or else. get out and go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, that does appreciate it. Okay, Tom, uh, last question. So what do you want to do for the rest of your career and why? Uh, I want to have both my ears and my my ears, my mouth and my and my eyes all working. In other words, I want to be, I want to have the right ratio of input to my ears and output from my mouth or my fingers or whatever the output is coming from. I want to, I, I, I'm a tigger. I, I, I live and breathe new ideas and the excitement of new ideas and telling people about those new ideas. And so I want to be doing that and not, you know, I'm pretty good at Wordle. I've got my streak at Wordle is about 130 right now. Uh, I even do the Cedarl, which is the 16. You know, I can do that. I mean, that's not what I want to do. That's that's just idling at the at the light. I want to be engaged with ideas, both and learning about them, swarming around them, finding out, oh, this is cool, this is interesting, and then finding ways to share those ideas with people who will say, oh, I can do something practical and cool with this. That's excellent. Music to my ears. You're not ready to retire and go play golf. No, I don't. I don't play golf. I played one round of golf. And- that's it. I'm gonna. I, my my line about golf is I will not play golf until it is the last vice remaining to me. Tom, thanks so much for your time today. Um, we know there'll be other discussions on this video and podcast channels of ours. There's plenty more to talk about, and we will talk to you soon. Bob, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. I really enjoyed the discussion about thought leadership with Tom Stewart. He has worked in seemingly every end of this business from the book publishing industry, working at the world's most prestigious management journal, Harvard Business Review, to working as chief marketing officer and chief knowledge officer at a large management consulting firm, Booz & Company, from being the, a thought leader himself, the author of four books and numerous articles in his days at Fortune. I learned so much from Tom talking about the practice of thought leadership and how companies get there.